Our text this morning will be Revelation 22, verses 6 through 12. Having gone through more than a few levels of education, starting all the way back at kindergarten and continuing on way too long, there's been more than a couple of times where I learned the classroom material with the expectation of forgetting it as soon as the final exam was done. Found myself learning because I had to, or, or learning just for the sake of learning. But in my mind, I was like every kid who's ever taken algebra, I'm never going to use this again. As we start coming to the close of the book of Revelation, I, I hope that you're learning something, but the greatest hope is that you're learning something useful. Now, I suppose it's possible that you're learning because you have to, because after all, coming to church and sitting here is something that you do, and revelation is what the message is about, and so you're kind of stuck, like being shoved into a math class. Or maybe you're learning just for the sake of learning, because after all, almost everybody has some sense of curiosity about the end times, and so now you're ready to take your final exam in eschatology and get all the answers right. But neither compulsion nor curiosity are reasonable motivations for studying Revelation. I mean, here we are, we are this morning, 41 sermons into what's probably going to be a 42 sermon series. And there must be, I mean, there just must be some practical benefit to studying the book of Revelation. And there is, first off, Since this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, I do think getting to know Jesus better and love Jesus more and trust Jesus completely, that is a practical end in and of itself. But when we know Jesus better and love Jesus more and we look forward to being with him in eternal life, it should also impact how we live for him in this life. So as we dig into the text, Revelation 22, verses 6 through 12, the Lord Jesus, who began John's vision all the way back in chapter 1, sort of reappears into John's vision in order to make the lesson of Revelation practical for John's readers. So we're going to read the text, and I want to speak to you this morning on the idea of what to do with what you know. Verse 6, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust Let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. 
And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. If we're going to look at this as what to do with what you know, the first thing we need to keep in mind is, well, what is it exactly that we know? After studying the visions of John in this book, what do we know? Well, we know that the Antichrist will arise someday and draw people into idolatry. We know that the saints of the Lord will will suffer uh, greatly under the Antichrist rule. We know that the Lord has a sovereign plan for the future, which only the Lord Jesus is worthy to execute. And there's plenty of other fine detail that we could get focused on and add more and more to the list of, well, here's what we know. But the main message of the book of Revelation is to tell us about the Lord Jesus and his return. Just look at this chapter as a whole for just a moment. The greatest truth, the the focal point of this book ought to just jump off of the page. We see it in this threefold promise of Jesus. In verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. In verse 12, Behold, I come quickly. In verse 20, Surely I come quickly. And we see it in the response to that promise of Jesus. In verse 17, the spirit and the bride encourage his return. In the middle of verse 17, everyone who hears welcomes his return. In verse 20, the apostle John longs for his return, saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. If there is a single message that is screaming at us from this text, it is that the Lord Jesus has come to save his people and will come again to reunite with his people. And so what you know is that the Lord Jesus is going to return. And all the events of this prophecy will come to pass. And now the text gives us four directives concerning what to do with what you know. What does this expectation of Jesus' return do for us? Well, there's Four things I want you to see this morning. Four factors of a Christian life which get altered as we put that truth into practice. First, the truth of Christ's return changes how we study God's word. Look at verses 6 and 7. And he, that's the angel, said to me, These things are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servant the, the things which must shortly be done. And in verse 7, the voice of Jesus, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of this prophecy of this book. So beginning sort of with verse 7, the conclusion of Revelation has three main ideas running throughout it. First off, that this book is a genuine revelation of God. Second, that the return of Jesus is the expectation of all Scripture. And then third, all those who read and obey this revelation from God, they're going to live in the expectation of Jesus' return, and they'll be blessed for their obedience. Now that conclusion, when we get toward the end, should hardly be a surprise to us, given that it's like, it's like front-loaded into John's opening words as he began this book. Do you remember back in Revelation 1? Turn and look at it for a second. The first three verses of Revelation chapter 1, 
says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass, and sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. So both at the beginning of Revelation and at the end of Revelation, we get this promise for the, the blessing of those who hear and keep That is, they listen and obey the written word of God. At the beginning, it's blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein. Here at the end in our text, it is blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. The reality of the return of Jesus changes how we study God's word. It changes how we look at God's word because it encourages us to learn truth in order to apply truth. Or maybe let me ask this as a question. Why is it that you read God's word? Why is it that you study scripture? Is it your goal simply to know more as if knowing more is the end in and of itself or is your goal to know more in order to do more in order to obey better you need to ask that question of yourself do you read and study in order to know more or do you read and study in order to do more they are not the same those are not like equivalent virtues And if you're not convinced that this is what Revelation is telling us, then ask yourself what the Lord Jesus himself had said. Did he say, if you love me, you will learn my commandments? Or did he say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? You can double check if you want to. It's John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. And the words that he uses there, keep, is the same word he uses in verse 7 of our text when he says, blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. The idea of that word keep is to guard, to hold fast, to observe, to obey. You can study the book of Revelation and you can draw yourself out a a timeline and make like a, a prophetic chart. Right? You can have yourself convinced that you've got all the answers. You're ready to take that you know, eschatology final exam. And in that process, you can entirely miss the point. In verse 6, John is told that all this vision is faithful and true because the same God, Yahweh, who inspired the prophets, has sent this vision to John to show his servants the things which must shortly be done. The essence of that message is the Lord Jesus is returning. And this book was given so that we would not only know he's going to return, but that we would live like he's going to return. Our faith in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ changes how we study his word. We don't just learn so that we know more. We learn so that we can do more. We can live for him better we know he's coming back second 
The truth of Christ's return changes how we engage in God's worship. Look at verses 8 and 9. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See, you do it not. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brothers the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. For the first time since chapter 1, the apostle receiving this vision names himself. And he does it, I think, because he is about to make a mistake. And he's just admitting, this is my mistake. I, John, saw these things and heard them. Can you just imagine for a moment what that must have been like? To be lifted up in the spirit, transported to the heavenly throne room, given a vision of the the whole earth and all the final things that will take place, to see this image of the Lord Jesus returning in glory, to, to feast your eyes on the eternal city, the new Jerusalem, coming down like a jewel out of heaven. I think we can extend a little bit of grace to the Apostle John for being a tad overwhelmed by that, I think overcome with admiration and wonder. And at that admiration and wonder, John expresses the right sentiment, but he directs it at the wrong object. He's focused on worshiping, and yet in his attempts to worship in all this admiration and wonder, he looks at the angel who had been revealing these things to him and falls down at the feet of the angel to worship. He says in verse 8, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Now actually, John has made this mistake once before with the same result. You can look back in chapter 19 if you want to. In chapter 19, verse 10, he said, I fell at at his feet to worship him and he said unto me, see you do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brothers and they that have the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Before we get hypercritical of the Apostle John, let's try to remember that the inclination to false worship is bound in all of our hearts. I mean, there's... There's a reason that one of the first and most basic commandments from Yahweh is, you shall have no other gods beside me. And he goes on in in Exodus 20 to, to forbid the worship of anything or images of anything in heaven or earth or under the earth. And why? Well, it's because we humans have this nasty and disgusting habit of worshiping good things God gives instead of worshiping the good God who gave those things. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.25, this is a fundamental error of all mankind that we worship and serve what is created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And of course, all we upright Christians hear that and, and we say, oh yeah, that is, that is what those wicked heathen do. Listen, it's not just them. 
Do you think the apostle John is alone in being awestruck by God's goodness and responding by trying to worship the angel, which was the instrument of that goodness? Aren't there a lot of people who worship Mary and what is she other than a created instrument of God's goodness? Some Christians, though they won't admit it, you've seen it, are prone to preacher worship because at one time or another he was the instrument of God's goodness to them. We can even fall into this error when we start elevating Scripture to the point where we worship Scripture as if this instrument of God's goodness is the equivalent of God himself. And I say that, you know, I love the Word of God, but it is not God, it's the message of God. And so John, in truth, is not doing something that's completely foreign to our natures. I imagine if any of us found ourselves in the same situation, seeing and hearing the things that John had seen and heard, we would have made the same mistake. And I don't doubt for a moment this mistake is here for us to learn from. Thankfully, the angelic response to the apostle is, make sure that you don't do that. I'm like your brothers the prophets or like all those who keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. God alone is worthy of worship. Third, the truth of Christ's return changes how we talk as God's witnesses. Look at verses 10 and 11. Before reading verses 10 and 11, let me note this. This is one of those great places where you get an example of a verse that can be taken out of context, particularly verse 11 and be dramatically misapplied. We need to understand these two verses together. Verses 10 and 11. He said to me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy Still. So first off, verse 10. The, the revelation of God is not a secret to be held on to. Do not seal up the sayings of this book, for the time is close, the angel tells John. Interestingly, while the New Testament book of Revelation and the Old Testament book of Daniel have much in common... Daniel was actually told something a little bit different from this. Daniel was told that he must seal up some truth. In Daniel 12, verse 4, it says, You, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even until the time of the end. And now the angel is giving John this message when this time of the end is close. And he says, don't seal this up because the end is close. The end is at hand. Now, obviously, not all of Daniel's words were sealed or kept under wraps. Similarly, in Revelation, not all of John's vision is revealed. Like you remember, as we go through Revelation, I hope you remember, there were the seven seals, and there were the seven trumpets, and there were the seven bowls of wrath. Do you remember that there were seven thunders? Those get overlooked because there's, they're sort of tucked in there among the others, but Revelation 10, verse 4, John is told 
It says, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So John was also given some instruction of, look, there, there, there are things that you're not to tell. So how do we explain this? How do we explain that God has sealed up some things and revealed other things? Well, simply, this is what the Lord has always said in Scripture that he was doing. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Right? There are secret things that belong to the Lord our God, and yet he has revealed some things, and those things that he, he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. <clears throat> Listen, the Lord is not duty-bound to tell you everything that you want to know. He's not obligated to tell us anything. But in his mercy and in his grace, he has told us everything that we need to know, and of what he has revealed to us, none of it should be kept a secret. This is the sacred responsibility of every disciple of the Lord Jesus. We are saved out of the world to go into the world and to declare to the world what God has done, is doing, and will do through his son Jesus Christ. Listen, John here is being given this instruction that you, you can't seal this up. You can't keep this a secret. You have, to, you have to make this known. As a sinner saved by grace, you have a moral obligation to proclaim what God has revealed in his word. Moreover, as the angel said here, the end is getting closer and closer, and so the proclamation of God's word is more needed, not less needed. Right? The angel says, don't, don't seal this up because the time is at hand. It's getting close. <coughs> now I recognize that not each of us are equally gifted, nor are we granted equal opportunities to proclaim the truth of God's word. But what you know, you are responsible to tell, even if that requires you seeking opportunity to do it. I mean, what excuse do you think that you might have that you would not be responsible for declaring what God has revealed? Let's say for the sake of argument, you got arrested by the government and torn away from your friends and family and got left stranded as an exile on some lonely island out in the Aegean Sea. You, you realize that we're talking about the Apostle John there, right? And yet he is even, he, he doesn't get a pass on this responsibility to proclaim God's word. Now, verse 11, it could prove difficult if taken alone, but it's not alone. It is connected to verse 10, just like the rest of the text is, we, we noted before, it has similarities to the book of Daniel. And so listen to this from the book of Daniel for a moment and see how similar this sounds. Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. 
Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. When Daniel's words are recorded, the angel tells him, look, some some of the people will hear it and be purified and cleansed and refined, but the wicked are going to ignore it and they'll just continue in their wickedness without understanding. Similarly, in verse 10, John is told, proclaim the message that God has given to you with the understanding that verse 11 is essentially going to be the result of John proclaiming that message. There will be the unjust who remain unjust. There will be filthy who remain filthy. And yet the righteous will continue in righteousness and the holy will continue in holiness. Or very simply, when we, when we dedicate ourselves to being witnesses of God's truth, the response of the world to the declaration of God's truth, the way that they respond to hearing God's word is going to affix them into an unchanging, eternal position. The day is coming when a change of their condition is no longer possible. When the wicked and the righteous have been judged, they will be forever fixed in this permanent character and disposition before God. The unjust and the filthy will remain unjust and filthy forever, and the righteous and the holy will remain righteous and holy forever. What more motivation could you want to declare the message which God has revealed? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Because the eternal destiny of people's souls are at stake. Fourth, the truth of Christ's return changes how we accomplish God's work. I just asked, what more motivation could we want? Well, verse 12 is actually the answer to what more motivation we could want. It's it's right for us to be motivated by the Lord's promise to reward obedient service. Verse 12, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. When the Lord Jesus promises a reward according to works, we know salvation is not in view here, right? You're not going to work so well that you've got a reward of heaven waiting for you. Salvation is a matter of what the Lord God has done, not what any person can do. But when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, you become his servant and there is a reward for faithful service. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says our works will be tested and those which amount to nothing more than wood, hay, stubble will be burned up. But those which are equivalent of gold, silver, and jewels, those will will be refined and rewarded. So let me ask, if you look at your life and you recognize there is a lack of service for the Lord Jesus... Or you should actually be asking yourself, do I believe that the Lord Jesus is coming back? Do I really believe that he is bringing his rewards with him? Because if you believe that, you will serve him. 
The Apostle Peter had this same view. He wrote with confidence in Christ's imminent, his, his soon coming return as a motivation for service because nothing else that you do other than serving Christ, nothing else you do in this world is going to make eternal difference. None of those things will last. Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God? Like, when you know what the end is, that the Lord Jesus is coming back and he's bringing his rewards with him, and in the process, all of, all of the things that we love in this world, they're going to be gone. They're not going to matter Shouldn't that motivate you to live in in holy conduct and in service to the Lord Jesus? This is why the imminent return of the Lord Jesus matters. And for that matter, I think it's why we're not given a specific date for that return. We're simply left with what we call the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. The sense that it is getting closer every day. And yet, in knowing that it's getting closer every day, we can't confidently say that it's so immediate that we can just stop what we're doing in life and stare up at heaven. Nor can we say that it's so far away that we don't need to have a sense of urgency about the work that we're called to do. The practical application of Revelation is the encouragement to live righteously in the expectation of the Lord Jesus' return. The Lord taught the same truth when he told about the end times in Matthew 24. He gave an example of a servant and essentially asked, well, is this servant either going to be diligent to his master's return, even though he doesn't know when his master is coming back, or is he going to ignore the reality of his master's return and someday be caught drunken and ashamed because he's taken by surprise? We know the Lord Jesus is coming back. What is it that we should do with what we know? Well, this text tells us we we study his word, not with a, a desire to just know more, but a desire to learn so that we can do more. We worship God alone. None of the things that he created because God alone is worthy of worship. We witness to the world around us because we know the day is soon approaching where they will be forever fixed in their position before God. There is a too late day for those who will not believe. And we work for Christ knowing he is coming soon and he is ready to reward the diligent service of those who live for him and work for him. 